Welcome once again to Moments of Grace. On this episode, a little something different from what we've done in the past. This one's called Theatrical Theology. That's right, Theatrical Theology. We're going to be drawing upon some of the most famous and iconic movies and scenes from those movies to think about our lives of faith. Deacon Ross and I are going to be taking you through four different movie scenes, and in so doing, trying to use those scenes to open up our life with Christ, our life with faith, and how indeed we live with faith here in our everyday lives through these movies. Well, if you can believe it, our first clip is from a movie that was 31 years ago. It doesn't seem that long ago that it came out, but it indeed was 31 years ago. Let's get rolling with some theatrical theology with a scene from What About Bob? Uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, probably, and Leo Marvin. The book is Baby Steps. The author is Dr. Leo Marvin, and we've been talking with Bob Wiley. Pretty impressive stuff, Bob. Dr. Marvin, back to you, Joan. Bye. <laughs> Wonderful, Bob. Thank you very much, Marie. Can we come back in a few months and update your progress? Uh, the guy, as long as it's okay with my doctor. What? Oh, absolutely. That's a very good idea. Okay, great. Come on, Dad, we're taking Love a picture. Come on, Dr. Marvin. 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 Come on, Dr. You were great, Bob. You really were. You were incredible. I mean, Dad choked. You saved him. That was great. That was really great. Here's the one who made it. Dr. Leo Marvel. Dr. Leo Marvel. Get out. No, we won't get out. We won't. You deserve it. I mean, get out. Get out! Is it something I said? You've ruined my life. You've ruined my career. You've ruined my book. You've turned a perfectly peaceful house into an insane asylum. Get out! Daddy! My God, Leo, what's gotten into you? It was a disaster, Faye! No, it wasn't. You were wonderful, you sweetie. You fine, Dad. Yeah. Why'd you need to kick Bob out of the house? You think he's gone? He's not gone. That's the whole point. He's never gone! Is this some radical new therapy? You see? Well, hopefully you haven't turned off this episode of Moments of Grace after hearing that clip and gone off to watch What About Bob all over again. I wouldn't blame you if you have. It is one of the funniest movies made in the last 30 to 40 years, and it is worth a rewatch probably every year. Now, if you don't know it that well, in the movie, Bill Murray plays Bob Wiley, a patient of Boston psychiatrist Dr. Leo Marvin, played by Richard Dreyfus. Now, at the beginning of the movie, we are quickly informed that Dr. Marvin has just published his book, Baby Steps. 
Of course, when anyone publishes a book, they assume that the fame and the recognition for the publication will be coming their way. That is, of course, what is to be expected. But if you know the movie, through many hilarious and yet gut-wrenching twists and turns, it is Bob Wiley who ends up receiving the greatest recognition for the book Baby Steps. This is because during a TV interview much later in the movie about the book, Bob intrudes and talks about how he has been helped by taking baby steps. Now, this causes Dr. Marvin to devolve into ever deeper and darker levels of revenge and hatred of Bob. Now, Dr. Marvin had definitely heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Actually, we might be able to say that Dr. Marvin heard all of your eyes for an eye and all of your teeth for a tooth. And while Bob wasn't evil, Dr. Marvin was most definitely not going to resist reacting to the slights that came his way. How often do we find ourselves not in the same situation of that movie, but in similar situations? How often do we find ourselves on the short end of the stick, not receiving what we think is rightly ours? How often do we find the person who we know to be at fault and harboring deeply negative thoughts and feeling towards them as a result. And then, how often do we take steps to right the perceived wrong? It feels at times, especially when we are operating in the moment, that revenge and retaliation are the only right ways of handling these types of situations. But how often have we done so? only to realize afterwards that our retaliatory actions have not actually made things any better. How often have we realized that they've actually made things worse? And while we were trying to make the other person feel worse, we actually ended up feeling worse in the end. There's a great saying from the Chinese philosopher Confucius, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. Now I can only imagine Jesus concurring with that wisdom. Do not resist the one who is evil, but turn the other cheek, as Jesus would say. Go the extra mile. Give. Borrow. Now we, of course, see all of this on display in the life of God. God came in Jesus not to be served, but to serve. Jesus was arrested without retaliation. He forgave because they knew not what they were doing. He was crucified without protest. He died not in order to save himself, but in order to give reconciliation to a world that begs for retaliation. To give reconciliation to a world that begs for retaliation. Reconciliation. That is the lifeblood that we receive from God. Not retaliation, but reconciliation. We receive it in church, in the waters of baptism, in the bread and the wine, in the Eucharist, and the life-giving spirit of God lavishly bestowed upon us. And we see that reconciling life of God on full display when we do things like forgive, when we go the extra mile, when we walk in somebody else's shoes, when we borrow instead of take, when we give without expecting anything in return. 
Now I dare say if you are anything like me, then you are taking reconciliatory baby steps along this cross-bearing path of following Jesus. But it is that path that truly leads to eternal life because it is a path of authentic and life-giving reconciliation and not retaliation. Reconciliation with God and, hopefully, with one another. And if it helps, we can echo Bob Wiley. Baby steps to forgiveness. Baby steps to serving one another. Baby steps to following Christ. Baby steps of reconciliation. Baby steps of reconciliation and not baby steps of retaliation. Without a doubt, it's going to take baby steps to accomplish all of these things. Let's not be afraid of that, of it taking small steps along the way. Those baby steps will add up to us traveling quite a distance. Well, we're now going to transition in our theatrical theology, and we're going to listen to a clip from the movie Shawshank Redemption. I don't think I can make it on the outside, Andy. I've been in here most of my life. I'm an institutional man now. It's like Brooks was. Well, you underestimate yourself. I don't think so. In here, I'm the guy who can get things for you, sure, but outside, all you need is the yellow pages. Hell, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Pacific Ocean? Shit. About to scare me to death, something that big. Not me. I didn't shoot my wife and I didn't shoot her lover. Whatever mistakes I made, I paid for them and then some. That hotel, that boat, I don't think that's too much to ask. I don't think you ought to be doing this to yourself, Andy. This is just shitty pipe dreams. I mean, Mexico is way to hell down there and you're in here and that's the way it is. Yeah, right. That's the way it is. It's down there and I'm in here. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living. Or get busy dying. Get busy living or get busy dying. Well, as we just heard from that brief clip from Shawshank Redemption, those words from what is my uh, one of my all-time favorite movies really does give us a sense as to the depth of this, of this movie and the depth of the story that it tells. Uh, the movie is a film that is packed with many underlying layers that offer us much that we can learn from. In case you haven't seen the film, or to refresh your memory, uh, it's a story of a character, Andy Dufresne, who has been wrongly convicted of murdering his wife and sent to Shawshank Prison with a lifetime sentence. 
After a very difficult period of transition, Andy becomes good friends with Red Redding, a fellow who has spent his entire life, his entire adult life, incarcerated. And Red takes Andy under his wing and shares with him some of the intricacies, the ins and outs of life in prison. As the two men grow close, Andy shares with Red something that he's reluctant to do, but like all of us, he feels that he can trust his friend and it's good to have conversation. And so he shares with Red his dream of someday getting out of prison and moving to a small beach town in Mexico where he can build a new life for himself. Now, speaking from experience, Red cautions his young friend not to build his hopes on a dream that will never happen. He tells Andy that after living a life behind prison walls, leaving won't be easy. He goes on to say, you know, Andy, these walls are funny. First, you hate them, then you get used to them. After long enough, you get so you depend on them. In a carefully measured response, Andy states, it seems to me we have a choice, either to get busy living or get busy dying. It must have been scary for Andy to contemplate the risks and danger of his plan to escape, but he made a choice and he chose to get busy living. He got past his fear and acted on his dream. In reality, Andy is pointing out that life is about choices. Some choices will be difficult and will require courage to face the unknown. They will involve leaving behind our lives as we know them and all of their safety and the comfort they provide. The parable of the ten pounds in chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel is a classic illustration of Jesus teaching his followers that over the course of our lives, we will be faced with many choices. Some of them will ask us to act in ways that might involve stepping out of our personal comfort zones, taking risks, and possibly making us fearful. In this parable, we are told that before leaving on a trip, a nobleman gave his ten servants a monetary gift and told them, Do business with these until I come back. It was clear that he expected them to do something with their gifts, but he gave no specific instructions. The servants were left to make a choice as to what exactly they should do. However, one of the servants, out of fear, decided he would do nothing because he was fearful that he would lose the coin and incur the wrath of the nobleman. So rather than make a choice, he, 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 what he decided to do was to wrap up his coin and to keep it in a safe place until his master came, came back. Upon his return, the nobleman was pleased with the results of some of his servants and rewarded them accordingly but he was angry with the servant who had received a gift and done nothing with it. Because of his fear of the nobleman, and also because of his lack of trust in him, the servant didn't go outside his comfort zone and took no risk. He chose the safe path. This parable is not about money, 
It's not about becoming an investment banker. It's about the gifts we have all received from God and what we do with them. They are not meant to be wrapped up and put away someplace for safekeeping. They are meant to be shared. And when they are shared, they are multiplied. We are nothing more than stewards of the gifts we have all received. Aptitude. Friends who stick with us no matter what. Love. Opportunities. Mentors who come into our lives at the right moment and show us what our lives could be. We haven't worked for any of these. They're all a gift. A gift that has been given freely and in abundance. And what are we to do with these gifts, these treasures? Well, as the parable implies, they are meant to be used and invested wisely. Hoarding and keeping them from others does no good. They must be given away so that they may grow. God wants us to use our gifts creatively and with passion to the benefit of others. This requires us to have an open heart and spirit and to be ambitious and caring for those around us, whether that means the neighbor across the street or the community of humanity around the world. So the question is, are we ambitious enough? One lost point about the parable of the ten pounds is that when Jesus told this story, he was on his way to Jerusalem. Our Lord knew that by going into Jerusalem, he was placing his life in great danger. He didn't have to go. This was his moment of truth, and he made his choice. He decided to take a risk and continue on to Jerusalem. He wanted to carry out his ministry, which had always been about healing the fear inside of all of us. Fear of life. Fear of God. Fear of believing in ourselves. Jesus' message was about the abundance of God's love and that we need only to trust in his love to be part of a new way of life, which he called, Jesus called, the reign of God. It has been written, without the abundance of the heart, nothing great can happen. Eventually, we all have to make the choice to go to Jerusalem to face our moment of truth. But just as Jesus was sustained by the strength he received from his Father, we can trust that God will be with us on our journey as well. The parable of the coins reminds us that at the end of our lives, we won't be asked, did you have a successful career? Or did you live a safe and comfortable life? No, the question we'll need to answer is, did you offer what you had? Did you risk yourself for the sake of God and of God's creation? We are now going to blast off to a galaxy far, far away for our next bit of theatrical theology. He did my work, not did you. Pass on what you have learned. Strength, mastery, but weakness, folly, failure also. Yes, failure most of all. The greatest teacher failure is. 
I recently took some time and rewatched The Last De Jedi, which is the eighth installment of the Star Wars movies. And there is a powerful scene between Yoda and Luke, which we just heard, that powerful scene of the drama of the movie reaching its fever pitch. The encounter happens on the remote island where Luke has been living, or we might say hiding, for years. Yoda appears to him, as Yoda always does, to help Luke find resolve and purpose. And as he does so, he gives Luke some very sage advice, which we just heard. The greatest teacher, failure, is. If you know the struggle between internal and external callings, then you know the struggle of Luke Skywalker. Luke wrestles so much with where the Force is pulling him, where Yoda is guiding him, and with all of the internal anger and rage that want to erupt, and as we know Luke, sometimes do. Luke must have thought so many times, whose will should I be following, mine or Yoda's? Mine or the Force? Well, if you know Luke's struggle, then you also know Jesus' struggle. For even though Jesus is able to make such bold proclamations as, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, we also know that he struggled with this resolve when he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. We know that he quickly adds, yet not my will, but yours be done. But the struggle was real. The desire to balance one's own will with the forces that attempt to guide and lead us to other places, well, that is real. And this will not always or hardly ever be straightforward or an easy struggle to navigate. There will, thank God, be moments of clarity, but more often than not, we are all going to be Luke's and Jesus's as we navigate the path of will and destiny. But we can always be counseled by Yoda's wise words. Words that I can't help but wish that Jesus had said to his apostles, the greatest teacher, failure is. What have you learned through your own failures? How have your failures helped you to become better at that which you have previously failed? How sweet has a triumph been because of past failures? How has failure been the fire that has refined you and made you the person you are today? And how will you approach your next failure on the basis of these reflections? That failure is the greatest teacher. Jesus' acceptance of failure, of death on a criminal's cross, was actually the deep will and purpose of God for his life. Jesus' acceptance of failure, betrayal, arrest, trial, and crucifixion, well, that was God's will to show the world what true love looks like. What the world sees as failure is what faith reveals as triumph. Now, this understanding of failure doesn't chase after fatalism or ineptitude or half-efforts, but instead we understand failure today in light of God's will for this world. And we see that not only is failure the greatest teacher, but also sometimes what we see as failure is what God intends as triumph. May we be so bold and courageous to strive after God's will, even if it looks like failure to everyone else. Well, we have another transition of our 
theatrical theology. And as we think about failure and triumph, well, the baseball season is well into its final few months. And so let's make that little transition and hear a clip from the great movie, Field of Dreams. Catch a good game. Thank you. It's so beautiful here. For me, well, for me, it's like a dream come true. Can I ask you something? Is, is this heaven? Iowa. Iowa? At its core, the film Field of Dreams is about the estrangement between Ray Kinsala and his deceased dad, John. As the movie nears its conclusion, as we have just heard, the two men are brought together on the Field of Dreams. And in, very, in a very powerful conversation, John asks his son if they are in heaven. And Ray replies, as we have heard, no, it's Iowa. But I'm most intrigued by what that opens up, which is another question. And Ray asks his deceased dad, as we have just heard, is there a heaven? To which his father replies, oh yes, it is where dreams come true. When teaching the disciples about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus most often taught through the use of parables. The parable that will be our reference point today is about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We hear these words in Matthew's gospel, and they are certainly reminders that there, there is a, a sense of what heaven is for all of us. Parables have a way of drawing us into the wonder and mystery of whatever it is that Jesus is trying to teach. In today's parable, we have seen Jesus teaching about the kingdom of heaven. We have heard him say that the kingdom of heaven is compared to a net thrown into the sea, which catches fish of every kind. But very good news. God's net is cast for everyone. All are included. When Jesus taught with parables, his intention was to inspire all who heard them to question their assumptions on aspects of life. Parables at their heart 
are intended to subtly push listeners to change their view of the world and their place in it. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he is speaking about a way of life that functions on God's values of unconditional love and compassion, and where diversity, as in creation itself, in every conceivable form is valued and celebrated as the work of God. Jesus wants us to see the kingdom of God as a state of being, a place inside each of us, a way of looking at the world, a world where all are equally valued and beloved as children of God. Life in the kingdom of heaven represents and presents us with a radical view of life that in many ways is contrary to the way we are told much by much of our culture how we ought to live our lives. Life in God's kingdom replaces fear with hope, resentment with healing, scarcity with generosity. This is a way of living that requires that we open our minds and our hearts to a new way of thinking, being, and acting. Jesus provides us with clear guidance for how we can do our part in living into the reign of heaven. He preached a message that every human being is to be honored, cherished, and loved that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven, and there is no place on earth where God is not present. What Jesus asks of us is that we embrace his teaching and take our place alongside him in helping to create the kingdom of heaven on earth. No doubt, it can seem like too big a task for any one of us. But I think that's exactly what Jesus wants us to see, that it is through small acts of individual kindness that the kingdom of heaven is lived out. Now, if you're like me, I suspect in the back of your mind, you're asking yourself, uh, when are you going to talk about the judgment piece? Because we clearly see that in this great net, which is open to everyone, there is an element of judgment. So the question that we are asking, I suspect, that I have certainly asked, will there be judgment? Well, a great friend of this cathedral, Bishop Will Willeman, has preached from our pulpit with these words. Yes, there will be judgment, but let us not forget who's doing the judging. A God of love, a God of mercy. Let's also remember that when we look closely at the life of Jesus, we find a life spent living out love and mercy, a life spent as a friend to everyone that society had judged a sinner. Jesus surrounded himself with every outsider and every outcast he met, people that society had rejected and excluded as not good enough. These folks were all accepted and included by Jesus. On a recent visit to Chicago, I was on a casual walk through the city and turned on to what is known as the Magnificent Mile, the well-known street lined with upscale shops, restaurants, and posh hotels. In addition to the shoppers and tourists, 
that lined the street, I also noticed many homeless folks. As it happened, I was walking behind a young woman weighed down with a large backpack and an old lunch school box. I couldn't help but think how sad it was for this young person to be trudging along, seemingly homeless and alone, with a heavy backpack filled with all her belongings and with a lunchbox which, if she was lucky, would contain a few donations from passers-by. And then she sat down on the sidewalk with two of the city's homeless and did something which shocked me. She proceeded to open her lunchbox, which contained snacks, and then she reached into her backpack and took out food and some coffee, which she shared with the two men that she, she was sitting with, along with a smile and conversation. And then I realized this was her practice. She was bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth to others. She wasn't waiting for it to come because she realized that the kingdom of heaven is here on earth and that we all help in bringing about it into earth. We're going to wrap up our uh, theology, uh, our theoretical theology ponderings for uh, today with a bit of music. Uh, and appropriate of the songs that we've chosen is Belinda Carlisle, Heaven is a Place on Earth. <laughs> 